Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard. I'm located in Payson, Utah at Orchard Hills Bible Church, and I am continuing to follow along in the New Testament with the schedule set by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which brings us today to Matthew chapter 4, where we'll be looking at the temptation of Jesus Christ. So, um, very interesting account in the life of Jesus before he started his earthly ministry, but after his baptism, so it's this in-between time, and uh, just a, a unique experience. So let's jump right in and examine this account. I'll be reading Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. All right, there you go. There's there's the account. Um, Again, it's pretty unique. Uh, It gives us an interesting look into... Jesus's earthly relationship with the devil. Uh, you don't have too many moments like this where Jesus is dialoguing with Satan himself, so uh, that's pretty curious. And uh, there's just some interesting stuff for us to glean from this. Now, if you uh, notice there in verse 1, the whole setup was a bit interesting because the way it's described is that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. So that's important to note. And then it gives us this purpose. Why did the Spirit lead him into the wilderness? Because this is, of course, Jesus, God the Son, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ in the flesh, willfully going. But the Spirit is leading him. He's submitting to the Spirit's leading in this instance. And why is the Spirit leading him into the wilderness? Well, it says, to be tempted by the devil. Wow. Uh, We can assume here that, of course, the Holy Spirit, being God, knew what was going on, that the devil was seeking to tempt Jesus. So that's very interesting. And it's maybe a little jarring for you to kind of wrap your mind around that. How could that even be the case? Uh, Maybe that's the reason why Joseph Smith and his translation changed this verse. I'll pull it up here. Uh, this 
is on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints website. It just shows the verses that Joseph Smith changed in the Bible. It doesn't show every verse. But you can see he changed Matthew 4, verse 1, that Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be with God, is what he said. Instead of to be tempted by the devil, it says to be with God. And here I think we have a really important learning opportunity. Um, now, I, I could, of course, talk about how, to tra- how the Bible's translated, how it should be translated, that sort of thing. Um, so maybe I should just make a brief note on that. There's no reason here to translate this. Uh, he went there to be with God as opposed to he went to be tempted by the devil. Because the scripture that was preserved, we have copies, lots of copies of the New Testament where we can go back and look and see what was written. Uh, There are some places where certain copies say one thing and other copies say another, and that's a whole conversation about how do you translate that. But when it comes to this verse, it's not like there's dispute as to what this verse said of why Jesus went to the wilderness. Did he go to be with God or did he go to be tempted by the devil? Uh, It was written that he went to be tempted by the devil. But Joseph Smith changed it to he went to be with God. There's no reason why Joseph Smith would have done this other than to just change what the original writing said. And you can understand his motivations however you'd like there, but he wasn't looking at Greek manuscripts and making an accurate translation from that. So that that's the only thing I'm going to say about that. Um, however, this this gives us an interesting insight into two different ways that we can view this ordeal in Jesus's life. One way you can look at it is that Jesus was uh, going to demonstrate for us how it is that we ought to live. So as we look at the uh, this account that I just read from Matthew 4, our primary focus should be on how we can apply what Jesus was doing to our own lives. That's one way to look at this. Well, look, he was fasting, it says, and he was fasting to be with God, uh, the Joseph Smith translation says. And by the way, the Come Follow Me uh, study manuals direct people to look at the Joseph Smith translation for this passage. So um, it is significant to how we view the whole thing, apparently. But, you know, Jesus was fasting to get close to God. Well, maybe we should fast to get close to God. Uh, Jesus encountered temptation with the devil as he was getting closer to God. Perhaps we should encounter or expect to encounter temptation from the devil as we attempt to get closer to God. Jesus, when he was tempted, he chose the right. And for us, you know, what we need to focus on is make sure that we choose the right whenever we get into these situations. And it becomes really this passage that's about us. It's instructive for us today. That's one way to approach it, and I believe that's the typical Latter-day Saint method for approaching that. However, we can also come at it from a different angle here, and I think this is the more appropriate angle. We can consider what this passage teaches us about the nature of Jesus and what significance that has on our salvation and then on our lives as we seek to apply the passage. So I think the it's best to say that the actual purpose of this passage in our Bibles is that it shows us the impeccable quality of Jesus Jesus Christ. The impeccable quality is that he was unable to sin. 
Now, perhaps you've uh, used that word impeccable in other contexts, like, ooh, the, the cake was impeccable. And what do you mean? You mean perfect, right? Well, Jesus was uh, perfect because he was unable to sin. There's uh, just not a situation uh, that Jesus could have been in where he would have disobeyed in any sense. Uh, Jesus, being truly God and truly man, was unable to sin as he lived life here on earth. And uh, we also can recognize here, too, how God uses the evil that's in the world to reveal such things to us. Uh, I mean, the Spirit led him to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, God is not the author of evil. He doesn't tempt anybody. Scripture says these things. That's very clear. However, God will use the evil that's in the world to teach us something, to touch us personally, to affect our lives, and to teach us as it's recorded in Scripture. And so that's the way I want to come at this passage today. That's the way I want to approach it. And there are a few passages uh, that I think we can look at that will highlight this uh, from the book of Hebrews. And so uh, let's scoot on over to Hebrews together to get a little bit more Bible as a backdrop to this passage as far as our interpretation of it. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 says, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So in this verse, we are seeing that um, there, there was a necessary aspect of the incarnation. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. Now that does not include a sin nature. Scripture is clear on that, that he was in the likeness of man when he came to earth. He did not inherit a sin nature from Adam in his humanity, as we all have, but he was in real humanity. I mean, he had a real, true human existence. A sin nature is not essential to a human existence, uh, as Adam was a true human before the fall. Um, And so when Jesus came, he didn't acquire a sin nature like the rest of us, but he was truly human, and he was made like his brethren in all things. And that was leading up to his high priestly work. He was a faithful high priest in all things, uh, which was ultimately manifested in this propitiation for the sins of the people. We'll talk more about that in this study later on. But that's the sacrifice, the final sacrifice of Christ, that he died in our place for our sins. He had to be made like his brethren in all things leading up to that moment. He, in his heavenly existence, he could not make propitiation. There's no blood that he could have shed without the incarnation. So he had to be found in flesh. And then in verse 18, we get this further explanation. He himself was tempted. Now, that's what we were just reading about, right? In Matthew 4, he was tempted. Uh, That's a critical aspect to his ministry. Uh, We'll read another verse here in just a moment. Perhaps you're already seeing part of it if you're watching this, uh, the video version. Uh, It's already on the screen. But uh, he was tempted in every way that we were, and that was another aspect of his taking on humanity, because he wasn't going to be tempted in his 
divine-only state before the incarnation that, uh, you know, he, he wasn't going to be tempted. But taking on human flesh and coming down and living in Satan's realm on the face of the earth, there were temptations that were going to be presented to him. Now, this is a, a critical juncture because you'll read something like, he was tempted, Jesus was tempted. We've read it in a couple different places already. That does not mean Jesus had the desire within himself to disobey himself. Uh, Jesus is God. Jesus is the one who set forth commands. And uh, Jesus didn't have a desire. He wasn't tempted to break his own law. When it says that Jesus was tempted, what that means is from the outside, there were all sorts of temptations that were thrown at him. We just read about three of them by the devil. But as a man living in a fallen world, all over the place, there are temptations. We, We all know this. And so he was tempted in that sense, uh, not from within, but from without. There were temptations that were presented to him. Um, some, someone was trying to tempt him to sin at different points in his life. His life. So that's, uh, that's what that's saying. And it says, back to that Hebrews passage, because he was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That's me and you, right? Hebrews 4.15 is the next one. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet he is without sin. Now, this is pretty interesting. Tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We know that sin starts in the heart. Uh, James talks about this, that where does the act of sin come from? Well, it comes from within, and our fallen desires basically give birth to the actions. Well, Jesus didn't have those fallen desires from within. So that's not what this passage is saying. It's not saying Jesus had you know, the, the, the sin within his heart and the desire to do evil things. He just didn't act on it. No, 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 no. That's not what it says. He was tempted in all things. He had, he had every kind of situation... Uh, generally speaking, you can think of, I mean, he wasn't married, so he didn't have the, uh, the temptation of an adulteress to uh, lure him away from his spouse or something like that. He didn't have the temptation to, uh, you know, kill his kids uh, because he didn't have kids, okay? So generally speaking, he faced the uh, temptations that we all face, kind of like in uh, the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, where it says that there's no temptation that has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. We share in a common temptation as fallen human beings, where um, living in a sinful world, where we're all tempted to exercise our pride. Uh, because you have all these temptations that lie without, that awake what's within. Well, Jesus didn't have that fallen desire within, but there were all those things without that were tempting him that were, uh, you know, for someone with a fallen nature, you know, would have aroused him to sin, and he would have acted upon it. But he didn't have a fallen nature. And so, in every way, he was facing situations where uh, the fallen man would sin, yet he was without sin. Tempted in all things, as we are, that's what the verse says, and yet without sin. How could he be without sin? Well, it's because he didn't have a sin nature. Why do we sin? Because we do have a sin nature. So he was tempted in all things, 
but without that sin nature, he didn't actually sin. Uh, we're looking at this, though, because there is this reality that he was tempted, okay? And that's what Matthew 4 is about. The devil is tempting him. And yet, he, in that situation, of course, was found without sin because the sin nature wasn't there. One more passage from Hebrews, really short verse, Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. This is another one of those passages where it helps to remember that he had to take on flesh, he had to be found incarnate in order to do certain things. You know, I mentioned earlier, bleeding is one of them. He had to take on flesh to bleed. Well, um, to be the spotless sacrifice, he had to come in flesh and learn obedience, as it were, in the flesh from the things which he suffered. As we think about what's going on in Matthew chapter 4, in the temptation in the wilderness, his interaction with the devil, you have Jesus learning obedience in the flesh. Uh, it says in the New Testament, in a couple of places, I think of right now Luke, The I think it's the last verse of Luke 2. It says that Jesus grew in wisdom, <laughs> wow, and in stature, that makes sense. He grew up from a baby to a man and in favor with God and man. Now, that's just fascinating, isn't it? Uh, He is the eternal Son of God, but in the flesh, he was learning obedience. He was growing in wisdom. He was growing in favor with God and man. Uh, That is just an aspect of the true humanity of Jesus Christ. Again, apart from a sin sin nature, but there's still this uh, reality of of, uh, the flesh. He was truly a human, and there were true temptations that existed outside of him that sought to pull him away from righteousness. Yet Jesus is impeccable. He is unable to sin. And in the flesh, he was absolutely unable to sin. So I don't think the, the purpose of Matthew 4 in the wilderness account, I don't think the purpose of that is an example for us to replicate. Uh, I don't think this is a pattern for us in our lives, the 40 days and nights of fasting and uh, being able to you know, basically shoot the devil down even when we're hungry. Um, I actually know of a guy who sought to do this, to fast for 40 days. I don't know how far he made it. He didn't make it to 40. He made it a long way, though, and eventually started to go cuckoo banana town. He went a little crazy, and uh, bad things happened in his life. As you can imagine, you stop eating for a few weeks, and things get bad in a hurry. Um, So I don't think this is about seeing a pattern that we need to replicate in our own lives. I don't think this is about our own righteousness. I think when we look at this, we need to see Jesus' righteousness. We need to behold the righteousness of the Son of God being put on perfect display in a situation where all of us would have fallen. Put yourself in Jesus's sandals here in Matthew 4. You wouldn't have made it. So this isn't about you replicating what Jesus did. It's about you witnessing, beholding the glory of Jesus Christ and bowing down to worship him as the one true God. Now, of course, there are things to glean from this, and we'll get to that just here in a couple minutes, that, that you can apply to your own life. For sure, absolutely. But it's not the whole passage, certainly, 
And that's not the main point. The main point is to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, let's uh, go back to Matthew 4 and consider the three temptations that are presented. The first is in verse 3, where the devil says, Look, hey, uh, if you're really the Son of God, why don't you tell the stones to become bread? Now, this is on the heels of verse 2, where it says that Jesus was hungry. (laughs) This is after he had fasted, 40 days and 40 nights. So, yeah, he's hungry. Remember that true humanity thing? He had a true body uh, that functioned like like ours, and he was hungry. So the devil says, "If, if you're really the Son of God, tell the stones to become bread. Don't you want bread? Don't you want to do that? It's a temptation to eat something forbidden. Sound familiar? It's a, a temptation for personal satisfaction. Well, Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy and says, you know what? Uh, the Bible says that man isn't to live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What an amazing response. He just quoted scripture, and that was his response. Well, the devil wasn't done. Temptation number two was to go up and stand on the pinnacle of the temple And Satan says to him, if you're the son of God, the same way he introduced the first temptation, throw yourself down. Nothing bad's going to happen to you, right? Look at at what scripture says. (laughs) Satan is basically saying, "You you like scripture? I'll give you scripture. And he quotes some scripture here and says, you'll be fine. Well, Jesus answers with more scripture and says, yeah, you're not supposed to put the Lord your God to the test. You're not supposed to test God. You're not supposed to take Scripture and twist it and say, well, that means I can do this for my own glory. This is basically a means of uh, achieving personal fame and notoriety that he could, look at me, I can do this, I can throw myself down, and I'm fine. Uh, That's just, that's not what God was calling us to do in that Scripture, Satan. Well, the third temptation, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him these kingdoms, how rich and marvelous They were, and he said, you know, he doesn't introduce it with, if you're the son of God this time. He he just says, look, I'm going to give you all this stuff if you worship me. The devil trying to make Jesus a, a devil worshiper. How stupid is the devil, right? This is just ridiculous. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan. So he doesn't just quote scripture this time. He gives him a command, go, Satan, for it is written, Now he quotes scripture, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil did leave him, says in verse 11. And then the angels came and began to minister to Jesus. This is uh, also another deviation uh, from the uh, Joseph Smith, or in the Joseph Smith translation. It says in verse 11, instead of, um, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that the angels came and began to minister to him in that moment. Well, in the Joseph Smith translation, he changed it to, and now Jesus knew that John was cast into prison, and he sent angels, and behold, they came and ministered unto him. So it actually changes it around and says, uh, Jesus called the angels to go to John the Baptist, who at that point was in prison. So that's kind of curious, isn't it? But uh, alas, those were the three temptations um, that were presented to uh, Jesus by the devil, and they didn't work, of course. So what are the uh, the lessons we can glean from this? Well, number one, we should see that, again, the Son of God is totally without sin 
even in his earthly life, he was totally, absolutely without sin. He is the greater Adam in the way that Adam was tempted by the devil and then submitted to the devil and plunged all of humanity into a fallen state. Jesus comes along and he rebukes the devil and stands up against the devil and truly is the better Adam. In Lewis Barbary's commentary on Matthew 4, he says this. I'm going to read you a paragraph because I just thought this was really well put. It says, Interestingly, Satan's temptations of Eve in the Garden of Eden correspond to those of Jesus in the desert. Satan appealed to the physical appetite, the desire for personal gain, and an easy path to power or glory. And in each case, Satan altered God's word. Satan's temptations of people today often fall into the same three categories. The one who had identified himself with sinners by baptism and who would provide righteousness proved he is righteous and revealed his approval by the Father. Satan then left Jesus. At that moment, God sent angels to minister to his needs. So Satan was basically using his same playbook to go after Jesus that he used to go after Adam and Eve. But Jesus comes along as the new, better, second, greater Adam and rejects Satan's offer and uh, shows that he is the, the victor of righteousness. He is and does what we aren't and we can't. <laughs> Jesus is totally righteous, and he does what is totally righteous. We aren't righteous, and we can't be righteous. We, he, we are creatures, and he's the creator. We see this over and over again in Scripture, and we see it here. How is it that he could go 40 days without eating food and then be tempted by the devil and just be a solid rock of righteousness? And that whole 40-day span didn't sin once, didn't have one bad thought, didn't have one temptation in his heart that he wanted to do something selfish or self-righteous or wicked or whatever. How could that be? That's because he's the creator. He is only good and perfect in all that he does. So I think the big takeaway is that the Son of God is totally without sin. And we could say because of that, Jesus is clearly greater than the devil, isn't he? That's a good line to aim in. For those of you listening who perhaps are LDS, uh, when you're like Baptist or just like a fundamentalist, people will just spout out amen sometimes during sermons and whatnot, if you've never experienced that. That would be a good point to, to shout out, amen. Jesus is clearly greater than the devil. <laughs> and here's the great news with that for you. If your salvation is found completely in him, you're safe. Because Jesus is totally righteous and he's greater than the adversary, if you are found in Jesus Christ, then nothing can hurt you. The gates of hell, <laughs> the gates of hail. I did that on Sunday too. Isn't that weird? Uh, it's like I'm from Missouri or something. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church that Jesus is building. So, if you are a member of Jesus' church, meaning you've believed in the biblical gospel with authentic faith, relying on Jesus' merits alone for your righteousness, 
There is nothing the devil or his minions can do to harm you. Amazing. A final takeaway from this, I think, is that the word of God should be upheld. You see in Jesus' responses, what's he doing? He's quoting scripture. The word of God is to be used and protected. It is to be understood and applied. It is to be proclaimed. The word of God is paramount, and Jesus demonstrates that here as he is tempted by the devil, that the word of God is what he's going to use to push back against the temptations of Satan. So what can you do? You can get to know the word of God. That's like a paramount goal in life, is to know the Bible to embrace Scripture. Jesus here is quoting Deuteronomy. Go read Deuteronomy. Uh, go read the Gospel of John and really like, me- like seek to memorize it and understand. Even just John 1. Just spend the next month in John chapter 1 and try to understand every little bit of it because that is critical to know and embrace the Word of God. Some will say, well, you should just write off the Bible. You can't trust it especially the Old Testament. Oh, man, that's so long ago, and so many things were messed up in there. Not according to Jesus. Jesus embraced it, memorized it, used it, quoted it. I mean, go get to know your Bible. What a great goal. All right, so uh, there's my perspective on Matthew chapter 4. Hope that was helpful, pointing out a few things there. And I appreciate you listening. If you've got questions or comments for me, you can... Uh, find me somewhere, social media, our church's website, wherever. My name's Jeremy Howard with Orchard Hills Bible Church. So glad you joined us. Have a great day, and God bless.